Good morning, my name's Leanne. Um, I'll be doing our second Bible reading for today, which is 1 Timothy, chapter 5, verses 1 to 16. Um, Please follow along with me in your Bible. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead, even while she lives. Give the people these instructions, so that no one may be open to blame. Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow may be put on the list of widows, unless she is over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list, for when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ, they want to marry. Thus they may bring judgment on themselves, because they have broken their first pledge. Besides, they get into the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. And not only do they become idlers, but also busybodies who talk nonsense, saying things they ought not to. So I counsel younger widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. If any woman who is a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. This is the word of the Lord. Well, do keep your Bibles open. We'll be reflecting on 1 Timothy 5. It's good that Kiwi's back with us, nice and dry. I'm, in fact, wet now. I forgot to roll up my sleeves, so I've got wet sleeves now. Uh, But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we reflect on this passage, teach us what we must learn so that we might live the way you want us to live. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, over the last few weeks, uh, our lives were disrupted again, wasn't it? Being in lockdown, now we're out of lockdown. And I wonder whether that highlights again the importance of community. We were made for community. We were made for each other and to be with each other. And so it is wonderful that we can be together like this today. But perhaps what it also reminds us is maybe how fractured communities have become in our society. When I walked to church this morning, passing high fences, high walls, that that was just a, a sign saying, this is my private space, stay away. Or the smartphone, if you think about that, how that has changed society and culture. According to a Christian author, Tony Ranky, he said, smartphone is causing a social reversal, the desire to be alone in public and never alone in seclusion. It's quite ironic, isn't it? 
You go to a restaurant, you see families all there gathered around the table, but they're not speaking to each other. Everyone's just on their phone. Very strange. Now, of course, it's not just smartphones. We can't just blame that. But I wonder whether it's the fruit of an individualistic culture. There is something good about that, of course, but there is also something very bad about that type of culture when it is elevated as the ultimate good, which means then that I'm an autonomous, self-defining person. It is me first. And one of the consequences of such a culture will be fractured communities. And so what do you think? In our society, do we see fractured communities where people just don't know how to relate to each other well? Well, this chapter today will help us reflect on that. And one of the key purposes of Paul in writing this letter was so that the household of God will know how to relate to each other well, how the household of God is to conduct themselves. Because that is what we are. You've heard from Ollie, you've heard from Ian in the kids' talk. That is what we are. You hear often, if you've been coming to this church for a while, we like to use the term church family because that is who we are. We are the family of God. We belong to God. This is not a social club where we just share some similar interests, but a family that belongs to God. In fact, that's why Jesus came in the first place to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent or human decision, but born of God. And so what that means, you, you probably know this, but it's worth highlighting again. In the church family, we are brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, grandfathers and grandmothers, aunties and uncles. Our relationship with God our Father affects our relationship with each other. And so how do we make sure that this household of God is not fractured, but behaves in a way that honours God? Well, let's have a look at this passage. Paul begins here by speaking about how we relate to men. Now, of course, different cultures will relate differently to men older or younger, but there are some biblical principles that are important for us to know here. In fact, you just need a little bit of EQ to see that it is quite self-evident. To older men, how do we relate? Well, Paul says he treat them like fathers. And so, I mean, just look around the room. Those who are older than us, or much older, treat them like fathers. And Paul was telling Timothy, you may be a pastor. You may have had years of training. You may be gifted as a pastor. But even if those who are older than you are in the wrong, you treat them as fathers with respect and affection. And that's what we see, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man harshly, but exhort him as if he were your father. Now, of course, different cultures will do that differently and show that differently. In some cultures, you would bow to those who are older than you. In Australian culture, that has changed, hasn't it, over the last few decades? I remember when I was in school, the teachers were always sir or mister or missus, never on first name basis. But many schools today, first name basis. Nothing wrong in that, but I wonder what it teaches our children about respect. And so older men as fathers. fathers. In verse 1, treat younger men as brothers, which means those who are younger than us. And again, we can look around the room and in the hall. 
Those who are younger than us, we don't look down at them, but we treat them with brotherly affection. And so what that means then is that in our church, we have dozens and dozens of brothers. And isn't that a wonderful thing? I'm a brother to you and you are brothers to me. And so that's relating to men. What about the women? Well, verse 2. Older women as mothers and younger women as sisters with absolute purity. And do you notice the word there, absolute purity? It was a word to young Pastor Timothy. When you minister to, engage, meet with the younger ladies in the church, your thoughts are to be pure. It's in fact what I think I'll one day say, God willing, when someone decides to date my daughter, what will I say to this bloke? You may have affections for my daughter, and I'm sure love is in the air, but you treat her like your sister, with absolute purity, dignity and honour. Now if I say that, it might scare all the blokes away, I don't care. But again, you see how beautiful the church family is meant to be. I've got two biological brothers, no sisters, though I do have two sisters-in-law. But in this church, we have plenty of sisters. And we are to care for our younger sisters, younger ladies like sisters. In fact, it's how I speak to uh, many of our younger ladies here, our youth leaders, our female youth leaders, as I minister and pastor to them. I would sometimes say, I'm your older brother. What's happening in life? Treat me like your older brother. Now recently someone responded to me when I said that. She said to me, well, you're more like a father than a brother. And I wonder whether she thinks I'm old. But that's the church family. Brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, not fractured, but united in love because of Jesus Christ. And it's beautiful, isn't it? Well, let's move on. Well, Paul now spends the rest of this chapter. I'm not sure if you picked that up in our reading. The rest of this chapter, verses 3 uh, to 16, about widows. Now, if I had to choose what to preach on and to spend a sermon on, it wouldn't occur to me to speak about widows. But thank God, he picks, we go chapter by chapter, and we're going to reflect on this, which means it's important for us to understand. It is good for us to reflect on. So why did Paul reflect so much upon widows? Well, two reasons. Firstly, any community big enough, there will be widows. Any community big enough, there will be widows. And it is often the group of people that are most easily forgotten and neglected. It's very easy to remember the vibrancy of the youth group, the kids' ministry, the newborns, and be excited about that. But we must never forget, in our church family, the place of widows in the family of God. And also the importance of widows in the ministry of God. Because if we do forget that, we miss out on the blessings they can be to us and the blessings we can be to them. And of course, in our church family, you will be aware there are quite a number of widows. That's the first reason. The second, well, the brother of Jesus, James, he, he said in 127, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. 
That is what true religion looks like. And it is especially important. It was especially important in the ancient world where there was no state-sponsored Centrelink pension welfare. To be a widow in the ancient world was one of the most tragic situations to be in. To lose your husband meant you lost your protection, the breadwinner, the defender of the family, your social standing. And unless there was some provision somewhere, many widows would be on the streets begging. It is why it's been encapsulated in Old Testament law. And we see in the story of Ruth, provision was made for widows, such that landowners, when they harvested their field, they were not to harvest to the very edge. They were to leave some for the widows, the orphans, the poor. And if the harvest dropped to the floor, they were not allowed to pick it up again. That was to be left for those in need. And that's why Paul here speaks about widows. Look at verse 3. Give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. Which means then that there are widows in need and there are widows not in need. And the first principle Paul gives us here, and it probably goes without saying, it's pretty obvious, it's plain. But the first principle Paul gives us here is that the primary responsibility of caring for widows falls upon the blood family, not the church family. It falls upon the blood family. Verse 4. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn first of all to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repaying. Do you notice the word there? Strange that Paul would use such a word, but he did. And so repaying their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. And so if you are a... A born-again Christian, you're a disciple of Jesus. It means then that your life is not just focused on spiritual matters and neglect the physical matters, the practical matters. You see, true religion is practical, especially when it comes to caring for the elderly in our own blood family. And this was good, a good reminder for me to reflect on these past few weeks. Yvonne and myself, we're in the middle age category, which means we worry up and we worry down. We've got elderly parents and we've got teenage kids. We're stuck in the middle, so we've got worries all over the place. But it was a helpful reminder that our care of our aging parents is to be practical. Not just on birthdays, Father's Days, Mother's Days. In fact, this week... I asked an older man in our church, and he expressed it this way. They do need the care. Often it's not financial because of how our government provides, but at least emotional care, and that is shown practically. And that is why when we elevate individualism so much, it fractures communities and even families. And so if you are an elderly person... And if you feel I'm a burden upon my family, no, you are not. No, you are not. They have to repay you. That's the word Paul uses. They have to repay you for how you have cared for them, provided for them, and loved them while they were growing up. 
Now, of course, I'm not an older, an elderly man just yet, but I reflect on the care we provide for our children, and mate, are they expensive? Children are so expensive. Whatever they have is not because they worked for it, and often not because they deserve it, but it is out of the love of us as parents. I mean, all they have, their clothes, their uniform, their food, the schooling, the books, the games, the toys, the holidays, it's all been provided. It is parents giving and giving and giving. Which means then that those of you who are older, you don't ever feel I'm a burden upon my family. No, you are not. Or adult children. Adult children who continue to expect their parents to give and give and give, even into their old age. Well, the question then is, when will you start making sure? Again, it sounds strange, but it's the word Paul uses. When will you start making sure that you repay the debt? Because that is pleasing to God. Now, of course, parents do not see their love for their children as debt to be repaid. But that's not the point. Children, we need to see that just as our parents provided for us, cared for us while we were growing up, we care and provide for our parents at the other end of life. It is a biblical principle. And we see it done better in some cultures than others. And I've been encouraged to see how there are many in our church who do care so extremely well for your ageing parents. Or when the elderly have children who care for them so well, bringing around groceries, taking to medical appointments, to the doctors, to the hospitals. And sometimes talking to some of the elderly in our church, it feels like there is nothing for us to do as a church because they are cared so well by their own children already. And that is not a bad thing. That is in fact a good thing because they have raised their children well. You see, the way we care for our parents is what we teach how our children should care for us one day. I'll say that again. The way we care for our parents is what we teach our children how they should care for us one day. And that is the strength of the family unit. God's teaching is pro-family, pro-marriage, pro-children. That is the strength of the family unit. We don't leave the care of our parents to the state or someone else. But increasingly we do see that more and more so when the family unit is being dismantled by our secular society, when marriage is confused, when the role of father and mother is confused. And sadly we're seeing more and more broken families and blended families. And it's not good for society. And so when families neglect the care of their own, Paul actually uses very strong language here in verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I mean, even pagans know how to care for their own parents. And so if we claim to be a Christian at all, then you cannot not care for your parents, otherwise your religion is worthless. And then we read in verse 16. We don't depend on the church. Why? If we can help. If any woman ha 
who is a believer has widows in her family. She should help them and not let the church be burdened with them so that the church can help those widows who are really in need. And so the first principle, quite straightforward. Primary responsibility of caring for widows or elderly parents falls upon the blood family, not the church family. But if there is no family and there is genuine need and there is the godliness of character to match, then the responsibility falls upon the church family. The church steps in. And unless the church steps in, she will be destitute. Now, of course, in Australia, it's quite different to the ancient world because there is Centrelink and welfare and pension, and so the care may look different, but the principle remains. And so verse 5. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. Now that's meant to bring to mind the story of Anna, the prophetess, in the Christmas story, how she was at the temple praying day and night, putting her hope in God alone. And how does God answer when widows do that? Well, through the believers. It is the church. They've got no one, Well, the church is their family. No blood relative. Well, the church is the family. It is the church who provides. Which means the, prof- the financial provision and care of widows is means-tested. Heard of that term before? Those who've applied uh, to Centrelink for anything? It's means-tested. The church does not waste a resource to provide for widows so that they can live a life of luxury. That would be terrible stewardship. But verse 6 we read, The widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. And so that's talking about the the walking dead. Those who live it up, flaunted a life of opulence, but are spiritually dead. They might have everything in the world, but in the eyes of God, they've got nothing. And the flip side is true as well. Those who have nothing will have all the things in the eyes of God. Those who trust in Jesus, because they've been made alive by the Spirit. And so it is means tested. But what we see here is that it is also character tested. If the church is to commit its resources, then it doesn't commit the resources willy-nilly. In fact, if we think about our welfare system in our state, if Centrelink was not only means tested but character tested, how do you think that would change society? I would think it will make a lot of good, do a lot of good for society. It means that people won't take advantage of it. You don't go on the dole just to be a dole bludger, but you are genuine in your need and genuinely looking for work. But here for widows. Paul speaks about this list for widows. Now, it doesn't mean that every church needs to have such a list, but it was how it was managed in the church at Ephesus. But there's a principle. If there is... If there was, in fact, back then, no state-funded welfare, well, the church provided that welfare, that pension for widows. And if that was happening, you can imagine in the ancient world, word would have gone down the streets to the neighbours, hey, you know, that local church, if you belong to that, you get a pension, especially if you're a widow. And people will be thinking, well, I'd like to join the church as well. I wouldn't mind getting a pension. And so how then does the church provide and decide? 
Well, the church can't provide for every single widow in the community. It just doesn't have enough resources. And so it needs to not only be means-tested, but character-tested. Support those who are already living a life of godliness so that they could be freed from thinking about food and clothing so that they can go on with their good works and continue in their life of godliness. You put those on the list. And that's what he says from verses 9 to 10. Have a look. Now, now widows may be put on the list of widows. No widow may be put on that list of widows unless she's over 60, which perhaps just means she's beyond the age of remarrying. Verse 9, has been faithful to her husband, which means she is a one-man woman, displayed a life of faithfulness. Verse 10, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, helping those in trouble, and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. And if that is the life of the widow, she's got no way of supporting herself and no family to care for her, the church comes in and says, let us care for you. Let us support you. Let us take away that worry of food and clothing away from you. Let us be the family for you. Now, how does this play out? It will play out very differently in every church. In our church, we do have our carers team, and they do do a brilliant job. It, it was established only at the beginning of last year. They've been given the task of administering care and financial help where needed, and especially in emergencies. The care may look different, but the principle remains. And now finally, Paul turns to the younger widows. Now when we read this, we cannot forget how tragic this must be, of course, for anyone to become a widow at a young age. But it does happen. I mean, during the years of war, Lots and lots of widows. And of course, when it happens in crisis moments, the church is meant to be there to help. It's not as though the church can come around and say, you're only 42, you have to wait another 18 years. Not at all. The church is there to help. But do you notice what Paul says here to younger widows? Don't put them on the list of widows. Why? Because there's a possibility of remarriage. Which means, Paul says to young widows, don't make any pledges too soon, too early that you will be a widow for the rest of your life. Don't make any rash decisions. Mourn, grieve, give time, give a few years. Don't commit to being a widow for life just yet. And so that's what we read, verse 11. As for younger widows, do not put them on such a list. For when their sensual desires overcome their dedication to Christ... They want to marry. And so don't make any pledges or promises too soon because if you change your mind, you want to get married. Verse 12. And if they do, they bring judgment on themselves because they have broken their first pledge. And so Paul is encouraging them, don't make any pledges just yet. But the principle that Paul wants for young widows is not to go on the pension too early and too soon to live off welfare, but to be fruitful and productive. You see, even with the best of intentions, if you reflect on maybe yourself or, or those around you, 
if I have too much time on my hands and I've got nothing good to do and I'm being unproductive, that's a very short step to a lot of trouble. Gossip, busybody, causing trouble. And that's Paul's point. Be productive. And so for younger widows, there is the possibility of remarriage. And so Paul says here in verse 14 and 15, So I counsel young widows to marry, to have children, to manage their homes, and to give the enemy no opportunity for slander. Some have, in fact, already turned away to follow Satan. So that's the teaching for young widows. Now, is it that applicable to us? Well, we need to keep that in mind. The principle is there. So what are we to make of this chapter for our church family? Well, the way we live, the way we live with each other, is meant to be one where at every stage of life, we are all expressing loving responsibilities to each other. And in a way, we do that, we do that both at home and also at church, we display that this is not a fractured community but it is the household of God and honours God. And so within our own blood families, there are responsibilities there. And perhaps this passage today is a wake-up call to some of us if we feel like we've neglected our own family. Do we teach our children how to care for us one day by how we're caring for our parents? Does my Christian faith make a, di make a difference at home? Not just spiritually, but practically. Otherwise, my religion is worthless. And do you see what type of witness that can be? Now, imagine the retirement home. You're there, you're an older person, and your son or daughter visits, visits you regularly, brings things to you, spends time with you, and your neighbours, they see that, and they're wondering, my kids have, don't come to see me at all. Why are your kids doing that? And you can say, well, I've got great kids because they love the Lord and they love me. But how tragic would it be if there are even any elderly members of our church who would say, I wish my son or daughter would know this passage in Scripture. And what about our church family? Well, we cannot forget who we are to each other. So it is worth asking, how are you a member of this church family? I mean, Ki her baptism today, she's our sister. How is she going to be a sister to us and us to her? So it is worth asking, what type of member am I in this church family? Am I the absentee auntie or uncle or brother or sister? Or am I the one in a household who always receives, loves to be loved, loves to be careful, loves to receive all the phone calls, but I've never really bothered lifting a finger for my family? You see, if it cost our Lord his blood, if it cost Jesus, our older brother, our master, our saviour, his life to bring us into the household of God, we need to remember that and given us the right to be called children of God, then let that be the type of family we are, brought together by Jesus such that there is genuine love and care for each other, that by our life 
and by our practical care, we be a delight and joy to our Father in heaven. Simple principle, but let's live it out. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your kindness, through Jesus Christ, you have given us the right to be called children of God. So help us to live it out in our blood families and also in this church family. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.